I just turned my mic on. Thank you. And <clears throat> so those of you online who didn't hear me, I'm not repeating myself. The vacation, though, are things that we look forward to. We plan it, our days, we plan the money. We even talk about it, don't we? So the days leading up to the vacation, don't you like to talk about it? Don't you like to just sometimes, like on a date night. Um, on date nights, my wife and I have a strict plan. Uh, guideline, we don't talk about the negative stuff. We just talk about the positive stuff, at least as much as we can. And that includes vacation. So if we have a vacation planned out six months, we start talking about it. But we don't, don't you love just talking about vacation and things that you would like to do? Then there comes the packing time. Now, some of you, you're last-minute packers. How many of you are last-minute packers? Be honest. I'm kind of a last-minute packer. My wife is an early packer. She packs a week in advance. The clothes, by the time she gets to them, they're old and musty. No, they're not either. But the truth is, she wa- makes sure she washes the clothes early, and she, as soon as she's done, she folds, and she puts all of her stuff. She's already, Mike, when are you going to pack? And I'm going to say, well, I'm, I'm going to wait. Wait? Yes, I'm going to wait for like three days ahead of time. And anyway, put the math together. So the truth, though, is she, she just loves the. And then, of course, we've got to clean the house, right? Because you don't want to come home and it's, it's messy. We wanna, you want to come home and it's clean. And so we've got to clean the house. Then we got to bring some cash just in case, right? There was one vacation, I think, was our favorite one, and that was our trip to Italy. It, uh, my wife, it, it was just, it was so fun. It was a guided tour, so we landed in Venice. I think we were there three days, and we got to learn how Venice was built. Strangest way in which Venice was built. It was built on the water. And the... Uh, one of the days that we were there, a storm came in, and Venice flooded. Water came up to the very door stoop of our hotel from the ocean. That was weird. The night before, see, they've got a plan down. The night before, they take these boardwalks. They're probably about four feet wide, and I don't know, 10 to 20 feet long. And they just come in truck after truck after truck, and they line the small street narrow streets with it everywhere so that when the flood comes in the vacationers and and the people who live there actually have a place to walk and it's not through the water so that was interesting then from there we went to florence and i think it was on the way to florence we we stopped by the leaning tower of pisa right pisa not pizza okay though we love the pizza there that's not it so the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and we got into all, what all the other tourists were doing, right? So the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it's like this, right? And so you take a long shot, and you, you kind of look like you're leaning up against it, or you open your mouth, or something like this, and with it, with it, the Leaning Tower of Pisa in the background. So we did all those kooky pictures, and then we ca- finally came to Rome. Uh, we visited the Vatican. We visited the Colosseum. On the way out of the Colosseum, they, they had people dressed as Roman soldiers. And they said, hey, come, get, get a picture with us. They took a picture with us. And then they, they stuck out their hand. And it was like, do we shake your hand? What do we do? No, it's now time to pay them. And they said, we'd like a, you know at least $5 for a cappuccino. And I thought, man, is that an expensive cup of cappuccino. But the truth is, you know, they just do things very differently over there, and we loved every minute of it, except some portions of the Vatican that we walked through that I was a bit discouraged about. But the truth is, it, it was great. It has such rich history. The joy of looking forward to vacation, in many, in, in many ways, it's, it's directly 
proportional to the amount of stress that work has for you. The more stress at work, the more you look forward to vacation. Now, obviously, I'm kind of using this as an analogy or an allegory that I'm going to talk about at the end of the message. But tonight, I want us to look at Revelation 13, a little bit of Revelation 17, about the beast of Revelation. Because we need to ask, what or who is the beast? What is his goal? How would you identify him? And most importantly, his, in his significance, what is he trying to accomplish? And that's where we're going to have to get into this idea of vacation, and I'll, I'm going to explain that later. But during that time, there's going to be a lot of stress, and we're going to need to have the right mindset, a biblical mindset, should we have to encounter that time. All right, so are, are you there with me? Uh, Revelation 13, before I read, I just want to do a very quick overview. We looked in the last week or two, we looked at the 144,000. We realized that in the general interpretations of today, they would say that the 144,000 represents 144,000 uh, on-fire Jewish evangelists during the seven-year tribulation. And then we discovered that the tribulation is not seven years, that the great tribulation of chapter 7 actually is the entire church age. But I'm not suggesting that there is not a tribulation at the end, because when we, the more we talk about the beast and is there an end-time beast, the more we're going to discover that there is tribulation. But we'd have to say that there is no abomination of desolation, and therefore there is we, – we shouldn't be looking for a Jewish temple to be rebuilt – at the end of the age. The abomination of desolation was predicted. Jesus predicted it. It was fulfilled in 70 AD. And there's just nothing in the text that leads us to say, hey, this is going to be fulfilled again in the future. There was just not that there. The great multitude of chapter 7 is, or, or rather that these 144,000, and you go back to that, 144,000 are Jewish believers, 12 in some sense to draw our attention to Old Testament Jewish nation, 12 in the sense that they are now New Testament believers in Jesus, so Jewish believers in Jesus, 12 times 12, 1,000. Revelation gets into numerology considerably, and in 1,000 we find this idea of many so I'm not convinced that 144,000 is a literal number. It is a number that symbolizes Jewish believers, not at the end of the age, because you remember what they're called? They're called first fruits, not last fruits. The first fruits, are you aware that the first decade plus of the church was almost entirely Jewish? Their experience of Christianity and following Jesus, because the 144,000 follow the Lamb wherever he goes. When they that they were actually they most of them actually witnessed Jesus healing someone. Jesus had died, risen from the dead, and the early church most of them had at least one time sat at his feet, heard a message, seen him heal someone, or at least heard someone like Bartimaeus's story or Jairus's story. Their names are in the Bible for a reason, and more than likely because they eventually were a part of the new church. Nicodemus, his testimony. So they they either saw miracles or they, they heard 
first-hand miracles, but they were first-generation believers. And then we, we realize that this great multitude without number is actually the number of people who come out of the great tribulation, which lasts the entire church age, and it is not a limited number like the 144,000, but it has no number. It is so vast. Uh, you get this implication if you if they say that the number of angels is a thousand and thousand, a thousand thousands and ten thousands, ten thousands, you, you do the multiplication there. Uh, this number, there's no, there's no end to it. It's almost as if God is saying, you could possibly count the number of angels, but you can't count the number of believers in Jesus. That's how vast it will be, church, throughout the church age. And these people, they're, they've been rescued. They were white robes and washed clean in the red blood of Jesus. Amen. We looked then at seven trumpets this past week, uh, Tuesday night, and they are, those seven trumpets happen throughout the church age. They're not end times. They happen throughout the church age. Certain characteristics, they are redemptive in nature because we came across this, this fraction, a third. And when we looked in the Old Testament, a third represents um, this idea of judgment. And there's, it's one-third is used a couple of times, and with each one there's this sense of judgment, but redemptive judgment. And that's, what we, that's actually what we see. God's restrained, it could have been all, but it's only a third, his restrained redemptive judgment throughout the church age. If you were to look on your piece of paper here, you're going to see a parallel between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. There's a, there's a lot of parallel between trumpet one and bowl one, trumpet two and bowl two. There's a connection with every single one. They are different, and yet there is that similarity. Both of them refer to the, uh, are, seem to have as a backdrop the symbol of the plagues on Egypt. It's not that they're, I, I don't think we're supposed to expect those very same plagues of Egypt, but they're going to be like them because when we, when we go back to Revel, uh, excuse me, Exodus chapter 7, the very purpose for these judgments on uh, Egypt was this. It says, I will lay my, then I will lay my right hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. God was trying to get their attention, trying to open their eyes that all the gods of Egypt and many of the plagues were against these gods of Egypt. Actually, each one can in some way be traced to a god of Egypt. Those gods of Egypt were powerless. They were nothing compared to the amazing power of Yahweh. And when these plagues would hit them by the tenth one, they would recognize that there is a God in Egypt, and it ain't any of theirs. It is the God of Israel. It is Yahweh, Yahweh being his covenantal name, and it actually an invitation. Come out of sin. Come out of that worldly lifestyle. Come out of worshiping the others, these other gods and follow him. And actually, some Egyptians and other nations that were there came and, and went with the with the. Uh, Israelites, when they left Egypt, they're called the rabble. And that group actually did cause problems for Israel. But that is, that is the purpose. There, there were redemptive judgments. But at the end of the age, I'm going to suggest this, that these seven bowls, and we're going we're to 
kind of look at this just a little bit this week and then next week as we look at the man of lawlessness. And we're going to look at how he, the beast is both a king and a, and a kingdom, but in the end he is this eighth king and he has a kingdom and God's judgments will be poured out upon him and the purpose will be, again, to bring people to repentance. So who is this beast? What is his significance? What is his purpose? Let me go ahead and read now Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to get into that last portion that talks about the false prophet. So follow me here. I'm going to back up to chapter 12, verse 17. The dragon has tried to kill the woman, which represents Israel, from whom Jesus was born, verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. The rest of her offspring are the descendants of the barren woman of Isaiah 54. Write that down. Isaiah 54 in, in Galatians 4, they are not Jews. The descendants of the barren woman are Jews and Gentiles. They are the church. So now his focus shifts. Satan's focus shifts from Israel to the church, and he words it this way. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten horns on his, excuse me. He had seven heads with ten horns, ten crowns on his horns. And on each head, a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had the feet of like those of a, a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority, to, he gives power to make war against the saints. He gives authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Just know this, as a saint, as a follower of Jesus, Satan has no authority whatsoever over you. He has authority over the world, and he can only grant power, not authority, to the beast and to those who persecute the church. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patience, endurance, and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Skipping over to chapter 17, starting with verse 3. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns, the very same beast that we just read about. Skipping over to verse 6. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? 
I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast, which you saw, once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life, from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and another, and the other has yet, excuse me, has not yet come. But when he does, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who, are for, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. Now, might just add in there, because I'm not going to touch on this one hour, realize that's not a literal one hour. That for John just simply means a short time. <clears throat> you can read about he uses that phrase in his letters they have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast they will make war against the lamb but the lamb will overcome them because he is the lord of lords and king of kings and with him all will be his and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers then the angel said to me the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Earlier, she was called Babylon the Great. I want you to notice something that in chapter 13, we see that the beast comes out of the sea. In chapter 11, it says he comes out of the abyss. So let me just say that when John uses this idea of sea, it is the, the abode of demons. Now, I don't have time to demonstrate that because that is what the abyss is. Some of you read the bottomless pit. Literally transliterated, it's the abyss. But the truth is that this is not hell. It's not Hades. It is, Second Peter 2.4 calls it Tartarus. That is not Greek mythology Tartarus. That is simply the abode of demons. It is not a place as much as it is a state in which demons live under this curse, under this bondage, in chains of darkness. They are constantly in torment, waiting for the day of judgment. Again, the abyss is not a place. It is a condition in which they live. I don't have time to get into that as we would look in uh, other places and how they're used, the arid places and such that Scripture speaks of. But I'm just going to suggest to you then this sea is the abyss and it is the abode of demons and the beast comes out of that. He is demonized. He is filled with evil. But as we'll learn next week, he will not come across that way, at least in the beginning, at all. And 
he will, as a result, will deceive many. But here he is. He comes out of the sea. And I want us to draw our attention to Daniel 7. Because in Daniel 7, four beasts are said to come out of the sea. The first one is a lion. The second is a bear. The third is a leopard. And the fourth is a ferocious or fearsome beast. Do you recognize those first three? Look there in, in chapter 13. Do you, do you see those names anywhere? The beast resembles what? A leopard, a bear, and a lion. And what did, they, what did I say they did? They came out of the sea, just like the beast does. See, this is why the beast once was, now is not, and yet will come. So the beast, we're going to discover his goal is making war against the saints. It's to persecute. It's to pressure. It's to bring the church of Jesus Christ either to physical death or spiritual death. That is his goal. So we see this back in Babylon. That would be the lion. We see it in Medo-Persia. That would be the bear. And we see it in Greece. That would be the leopard. Now, and, and, th and this is how, how we see it played out as far as this chain of one kingdom conquering another pictured in Daniel 7. We see these very same things. So these are kingdoms that were set up to persecute, to conquer the people of Israel. So now when we talk about a beast, his goal is to make war against the saints. We see this repeatedly in the book of Revelation. That is Satan's goal. That is the beast's goal. This beast has ten horns, excuse me, ten crowns on ten horns with seven heads. The ten crowns are ten kings that will eventually help the beast. The seven he heads, we'll get to that in just a little bit. <clears throat> if you notice the goal in chapter 2 verse 17 of the dragon because he's enraged is to make war against the rest of her offspring he then gives that authority to the beast and that is exactly what the beast does it says that the beast has a fatal wound that is a wound unto death now I need to say something right now we're going to discover, um, and, and, and I'm a, we're only going to do that this week, but if you were to look at Revelation in depth, you would notice many references to Rome and to Roman rulers. I'm not suggesting that the beast is, is Nero, but Nero was one of the main persecutors, well-known persecutors of the church. He burned Rome in 64 AD, blamed it on the Christians, and then had many of the Christians killed while he was rebuilding Rome according to how he wanted Rome to look. We'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. So number one, we realize that in 68 AD, Nero committed suicide. He died. As soon as he died, Rome was in complete chaos. We have the, what's called the four emperors in a year. Technically, it was more like a year and eight months, but... They call it the four emperors in a year. And I'm not going to spout off the names, but the fourth one actually stayed for at least 10 years. I yeah, 10 years. Um, and, and 10 years? Yeah, I'm trying to re remember my, my, uh, my history there. But he, he, he ruled for at least 10 years. And his name was Vespasian. 
He was actually the one who was instigating the war against Jerusalem, which called back to Rome to be crowned emperor and left the ransacking of, of Jerusalem to his son Titus, General Titus. Titus became king after his father. He was his oldest son. <clears throat> so Nero committed suicide. It seemed as if Rome was in chaos. One, when, a ki- when someone ascended to the throne, he was killed just one after the other. Suicide, not suicides, but um, uh, murders. And consequently, eventually, around two years, Vespasian takes the throne and bring some calm to the empire, but it truly was seeming as if Rome was going to die. The beast, it says, burned Babylon the Great, just as Nero burned Rome. Now again, I'm not suggesting that the beast is Nero. I believe he's one of the heads, but Nero is just a type that we draw, just like uh, the plagues of Egypt became a type that Revelation draws from, very clearly draws from. Not that we're going to experience those same ten plagues, but this idea of this type was that they were redemptive, and that's what we're—that's what John is trying to portray in Revelation, redemptive judgment. So Nero becomes like a type. Actually, if you look at his name in Greek, his, his name in Greek is Neron, and it actually, when you do the numerology with it, is 666. Again, some people, I believe, they, they hold to what's called a preterist interpretation. They would say, see, Nero was the beast. I'm going to suggest he's not. He is just a type. And so w- let's look forward further as far as the beast uh, utilizing Nero as a type. Um, Nero restored Rome as he wanted it, and under Vespasian, Rome began to thrive again. It's coming back to life. Um, I mentioned 666 is code for Nero or Neron. The seven hills in which this woman sits, Rome was built, and everyone knew it, Rome was built on seven hills. But each of these hills becomes symbolic now for seven kings. We'll get to that in a moment. There are other types that we, we see in Revelation, not just the plagues of Egypt, but Babylon. I don't believe he's talking about literal Babylon, but Babylon and the very fact that Babylon completely destroyed the, the people of God, brought them captive, Daniel being one of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, destroyed the temple, burned the temple in, in 586 B.C., and so on and so forth. And so Babylon is viewed as this tremendous city of the Babylonian Empire, just like Rome is the hub of the Roman Empire. We see Jezebel that she talked about in chapter 2. Not that this false prophetess's name was actually Jezebel. It may have been. I doubt it. But it may. It, it, it seems to just simply be a, a type of the Jezebel we read about, Queen Jezebel we read about in the Old Testament that was engaging in idolatry. And here it's not just idolatry but also sexual immorality leading the church astray. Jerusalem, it's not referring to the literal city of Jerusalem, but he's referring to the heavenly Jerusalem that is the kingdom of God. So there are types that are used in Revelation. Nero just happens to be one of them. I'm throwing a lot of information out here to you because I want to go someplace and I want us to really get into some application. 
um, I, I, you notice that it says here in chapter 13, verse 5, that he has authority for 42 months. 42 months is the same amount of time as three and a half years, the same amount of time as time times, which would be time times, times, and half a times, three and a half times. It would also be the same length as 1,260 days. So 42 months, 1,260 days, three and a half years, they're all saying the same thing. When you do a study on this idea of three and a half, we realize that when it's used in both Old and New Testament it, as a symbol, that it represents, it just simply represents persecution. It's used twice in Daniel, and in each instance that it's used, it refers to persecution as the main focus. Every time that it's used in Revelation, and that's six times, the focus is persecution. When God protects the woman who gave birth to the child, Jesus, he protects her from, this, from Satan who's trying to destroy her and persecute her for three and a half years, 1260 days. Just go through Revelation. It's, is it not true? You, you're going to discover every time three and a half or 42 months and, and such, it's always referring to specifically this idea of persecution. So I'm going to suggest that it's not literally 42 months, but it's this idea of persecution. It is just the reign of the beast. He may end up doing it for three and a half years, but more than likely it is just a reference to the exact time that God allots for him to persecute the church. Do you remember the souls in chapter 6 that are found under the altar? And they cry out, how long will it be until you avenge our blood? They are the martyrs. And God says, when the full number who are to die have been fulfilled. Church, can I just say that that is not an ungracious statement? It's not because God delights in the martyrdom of his people. But just listen to me. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of martyrdom, there is something. The, Satan, of course, means to destroy the church. But I'm going to tell you that everything that the devil plans for evil... God, in this phenomenal, even miraculous way, turns it around for good. And so when you see persecution, you see in the, in the history of the church, you see a refining of the church, but you see a people who are so adamantly in following after Jesus. Persecution, martyrdom. We, we see this refining process. We actually see, like in China, a perfect example today would be in China, where it's illegal to have a church that's not registered with the state. Very few, if any, Bible, truly Bible-believing churches want to do that because now the Chinese government has their thumb on them and knows exactly where they are, who's in their church, and will dictate to them everything that they need to do. So to avoid that, they have underground churches. The church in China, though it is persecuted so strongly, is growing rapidly, church. People count the cost. And when, the, when you count the cost, the Spirit, you allow the Spirit of God to make your heart pliable. You see, this is, this is what happens during seasons of persecution. So Jesus is not, or, or God is not saying to these souls under the altar, I, I, I just want to persecute as many as possible, and then 
I will avenge your blood. No. He's going to avenge their blood during these times of trial to call people to repentance, but he is also going to use the trial. He's going to use the persecution. He's going to use the martyrdom to call people out of the darkness to this radical decision to follow Jesus Christ. That is the nature of persecution and martyrdom. It happens. What Satan means for evil, what he means for evil in your life, my friends, God is going to turn it around for good. That's his promise. Such good. I need to go on. We, just, we, we, we looked at this just briefly, but the mark of the beast, and I didn't read about it, it's at the end of chapter 13, but the mark of the beast, I'm suggesting to you, is not a physical mark on the hand or the forehead. Notice that on the hand and on the forehead, those are the two places where in Deuteronomy 6, the Jews were told to put scripture, and they would write scriptures on whatever it is they would write scripture on, and I'm can't remembering the... Anyway, and then they would fold it up, and they would put it in this little box, scripture in this little box, and they would either, as a phylactery, and tie it to their forehead or around their wrist. And it would be a reminder of who their God was and that God's promises will always be fulfilled. And so, and, and his commandments, that if I follow him, there is blessing that's promised. So, this idea of the hand, which is what you do, the forehead which is the mind that's what you think who governs that does the beast or does the lamb those who were sealed with, with, with that were 144,000 they will they were sealed on the forehead you're not gonna you wouldn't be able to see that it's not a mark that you can see it is just the stamp of of God's ownership on them and I'm going to suggest that this mark of the beast it's not something you're going to see it's not a chip in the hand or in the forehead it's not going to be something that you can scan under. It's none, none of that. It is simply the name of the beast. It is who you pledge your allegiance to. That is the mark of the beast. Because so many people, they're afraid. If I get the mark of the beast accidentally, or what if I'm deceived? And the Bible says I'm, everyone who gets the mark of the beast will go to hell. That's absolutely true. But it's not because it's a physical mark. It is a condition of the heart. Who are you following? Who is your master? Who do you surrender your allegiance to? This is the beast. He requires devotion. He requires even your worship. And again, the imperial religion or cult in Rome, this is a type of that. We notice in chapter 7 that the beast is scarlet. We didn't read about that in chapter 13, but in chapter 17, we read he's scarlet. The scarlet, there are two colors in Rome. Purple was the sign of uh, royalty or the aristocracy, wealth. And so if you had a high-ranking office, you were wealthy, you would generally wear purple. And that was a sign of purple. Notice the woman riding the beast is dressed in purple and scarlet. So why is the beast scarlet? Because... The Roman army, the political power was dressed in their royal scarlet um, cape. That, that the, the Roman soldiers wore scarlet. And so 
we, we have this idea that it is, again, with Rome as that type, this idea of the beast, the conquering, he is going to be a military power. Or it's going to be a military power. It's going to control. It's going to dominate. I'm not suggesting he's not wealthy, purple, but the focus is military power and prowess. Again, what is... A, a, it, it's The beast is said that he once was. If you look there in chapter 17, verse 8, he once was, now is not, yet will come. And in the Greek, it just simply says, he was, is not, and will come. That literally, that's what it means. He was, is not, and will come. And then it talks about seven kings. Now, let's understand, friends, that the beast once was. Right now, he is not. Who is? The seven kings is, are. Okay? They are the ones that are ruling. Five have fallen. One is ruling now. One will rule shortly. And, and but he will rule for only a little while. Now, the emperor during John's time was Domitian, the brother, the younger brother of Titus, the son of Vespasian. Okay, he was ruling, and he ruled for. I think I thought it, the, the number escapes me. I, I think it's like fourteen years. Titus only two, but he was like, I'm, I'm sorry, about fourteen years. And then the the one who was to come, Nerva, reigned only two years. Now, who were the five kings? I don't think that's important for John. I've, I've read commentaries, and they try and figure out who the five kings are. Here's what's important. There are seven complete God's persecution that he allows to strengthen the church. What Satan means for evil, God turns around for good. So seven is important. One is reigning right now, so that gives the reader realizing one of these seven kings historically is reigning right now and then there's another one and then there's an eighth i'll get to that in a moment so who the five are is just not important he doesn't tell us just five have fallen in other words five are dead you can uh, the idea though is that five plus one plus one equals seven this idea of completeness of persecution god has a plan so the beast represented the five represented the kingdoms in the past that persecuted the saints now it's not the beast that's said to be reigning but it is the seven kings okay it's not so much the roman empire the church was a part a vital part of the roman empire by the way it is the seven kings or seven emperors that he chooses to focus on and then there is an eighth king so here's what i'm going to suggest I realize that some people believe that the beast is just political kingdoms, it's ide he's ideologies, he's things like evolution and Marxism and godless economy, uh, economic theories and so on and so forth, but all of which deny God or persecute the church. And I would suggest as we redo this, a fair evaluation of chapter 13 and chapter 17, I think we can only say that scripture shows us that he is either a kingdom or a king. He's not an ideology. He is not a thing. At the very end, when Jesus comes back, it says that he defeats the beast and the false prophet and throws them alive into hell. 
They are not things. They are people. It, though they were kingdoms, now, and they're reigning as seven kings, seven that is, he is going to manifest as one king in the future. An eighth king related to the seven. So I'm not going to say he's born in Rome. Rome is just a type, okay? Not to be taken literally, I don't believe. But he is a future king. He is going to reign. He is going to have a kingdom. And when, you, when we look through the seven bowls, remember, as you look on this chart here, we have the seven seals, then we have the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls. The seven bowls, yes, they are plagues, but you never find this fraction of one-third. It's, if anything, it's all. God pours out his judgment. Upon, it is unrestrained judgment. And it says that he pours it out upon the beast and his kingdom. So at this moment, the beast is not a kingdom. It's not an ideology. He's a person ruling a kingdom. That will happen in the future. This leads me to believe that these seven bowls of judgment will, ha will be poured out at the end times. If there's portions of revelation that are apocalyptic, that is where we need to look. But that doesn't happen until chapter 16. That's when we learn about Armageddon, and, and we'll look at Armageddon, you know, after Christmas. We'll look at the return of Christ after Christmas. We can look at the beast tonight and next week. It's man of lawlessness next week. Who he is he? What is he? And so on. But, so, this beast, then, has a focus. I've mentioned it before. He shares a common dream, a common goal, with his master, who is the red dragon, who is Satan, the ancient serpent. And that purpose is to persecute Christians. It is to discourage them. It is to seek to defeat them, make war against them, and overcome them, defeat them. That's his goal. And to some degree, he will take the life of followers of Jesus and, in a sense, conquer them in that way. But God has this ultimate plan that he is moving forward with that will eventually overthrow everything in the world. And when, when that time has come, then the beast will be destroyed at Jesus' second coming. But this, this idea of persecution, Satan's goal we find in Revelation 12, 17. Revelation 13, we see the beast picking up this same goal with these words. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise authority for 42 months. Skipping down to verse 7, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. So here is my question, and I just want to spend the remainder of our time with this. How do we endure persecution? If we get to see Jesus' second coming, church, before he comes, there will be persecution. I believe there's going to be revival before that. We'll look at that next week, but there's going to be persecution. You will need to endure persecution. How do you do that? How do you go through that? I, I, I think there's some persecution that just terrifies us because we see so much of it on television, right? Pulling the fingernails out and all of this. And it's like, yeah, no. And, and I could get into more gory things, but I'm not going to. But the truth is that can terrify us. I do. I mean, I, I, sometimes I think about that. What, what, if I were to go through persecution, what would I have to go through? And some of the people who have been persecuted, Christians who have been persecuted and even martyred, they have been through how do you get rid of this? I mean, I mean, 
don't think anyone can truly be ready for persecution and not fear it. Not to, I mean, Jesus was all night praying, God, is there any way to, for this cup to pass from me? He knew what he was about to bear on the cross the very next day. Insurmountable, it felt. As a human in flesh, frailty, who could die, and he was feeling the weight of this. So church, I think Jesus understands this natural tendency to fear persecution. How do you walk through? How do we equip ourselves? Matthew 24. I just want us to, to look at just a few things. Matthew 24, starting in verse 9 through 12, it says this. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. I tell you, Jesus. The persecution may be mild, just in which it may seek to cause us to compromise, or shut our mouths. I think we experience this even today, or maybe severe martyrdom. Number one, number one, how do we endure it? I'm going to tell you this, church, you have got to be 100% sold out for Jesus. Persecution will define you. How do you endure it? How do you walk through it? Those who will endure to the end will do so because of a passion for Jesus. They are all in and not halfway. They're not straddling some fence. They're not kind of one foot in the kingdom of God, one foot in the kingdom of, of the world. They are both feet in the kingdom of God, and they are running hard after Jesus. And persecution will bring you to that place, and it will tell you whether you are going to be a follower of Jesus or not. It will make you, it will bring you to this decision. Am I really going to follow Jesus or am I not? And if you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to suggest you will pursue him. But let's do that now. Let's be ready with the heart that runs hard after Jesus. No toe dipping. Not just enough of God in my life. No, I'm all in. I'm 100%. I'm following after Jesus. Not I'll try him and see if he fits. He's not some garment that we try on, and if, hey, it just doesn't suit me, I'll take it off. That is not how salvation works. Faith is I am all in. And being all in, that all inness will transform you. Because the Spirit of God will come into you and make you new. Water doesn't boil at 210 degrees, church. It boils at 212. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are halfway committed to him, right? Isn't that what it says? No, whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's what we're called to. And I'm just telling you, church, if you're not fully committed to him, I'm not saying you're bound for hell, but you know what? Maybe you do need to go through some persecution. I, I pray that we don't, but it will push you. Just like when Jesus still, when he kept doing miracles to the, for the Jews, when he kept preaching truth, he, he polarized them. There was no sitting on the fence when it was to listen to Jesus, when it was to see the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. 
You were either all in or you weren't, and you crucified him. There was no middle, middle ground. So, we're to be sold out for him. Genuine, life-changing experience, walking with Jesus. Trials, church, should make us better, not bitter. What is it? How, how is it impacting you? If it's creating bitterness, if it's causing you to push God away, let me just remind you of how good and how loving your Father is in heaven. He pursues you. And yes, we go through hard times, but they are so crucial. No one embraces trials because we love them. I'm not saying that we cannot enter them with joy. Yes, we can. Because when we do that, it is because we do it by faith. We know, we know that we know that we know that it's going to work out for our good. God is going to do something amazing. When Satan's coming against you, buckle your seatbelt. Trust in him. He is about to take you on an adventure that will blow your mind. He's about to take you on an adventure to do something that is so awesome. That's just the nature of persecution. That's the nature of opposition. Don't give in to it. Number two, don't love the world. This is the flip side of number one. The love of many will grow cold, church. It'll grow cold. It's not going to be attractive to be a follower of Jesus because if you're going to follow Jesus, you may die. Well, guess what? The early church faced that, Every, especially during Nero. Nero's reign from 54 to 68 when he committed suicide. He, he was a persecutor of church. He was known for, he wasn't the only one by any means, but he was probably the most well-known persecutor of the church in, in Roman history. And he is therefore that type of beast that will seek to persecute and destroy the church, but he will not be able to do it. But don't get me wrong. In persecution and yes, in the end times, the love of many, most, will grow cold. Don't love the world. Don't love this life. Don't sacrifice your relationship with Jesus for the things of this world. Starve the flesh. Don't think, well, I'm just going to give in a little bit. I mean, it's not a big deal, right? Oh, you wait. That sin will consume you. You step into it now without that repentance, without that hatred, without that turning away, without that following. No, I hate that. I want to follow Jesus and you just get comfortable. You know the analogy with the frog when he's thrown into cold water? He's cold-blooded, so he, he, he acclimates. But if you bring that cold water to a boil, the frog will not jump out because as, it's, as the water slowly gets hotter and hotter, so does his ability to accommodate, and he will die being boiled to death. That's the nature of sin. That's Satan's tactic. You feel comfortable in your sin. You don't feel a lot of conviction except when you come and listen to a sermon or read your Bible. But the truth is, God is saying, come out of that. Get away from it. Starve the flesh. Get into the Word. Love Him. Fall in love with Him. Follow Jesus. Be like that 144,000 that followed Him everywhere He went. They looked like Him. They dressed like Him. They, just, they talked like Him. They modeled Jesus. And so I'm just going to suggest, love Jesus with all of your heart and hate the world 
and then last and, and just asking you today are you feeding the flesh feed that love for Jesus starve the flesh and then lastly watch watch have one eye on the present circumstances and another eye on the future see when I go on vacation I'm trying to wrap up things with work and job and set that in place so I can relax on my vacation but I'm going to constantly look for towards my vacation I'm going to talk about it see that vacation oh church it's more than a vacation it's an eternal one it is eternal bliss no there won't be any tears there will be this opportunity to follow Jesus unhindered by the flesh and by the beast and any persecution and anything out in the world that's calling to us gone living only for jesus in this amazing place on earth heaven forever and ever and ever i look forward to that i don't just focus on it alone because i've got a job to do occupy my time but i tell you what i keep an eye on that how do you prepare for persecution learn how to keep one eye on what you're doing now but another eye on the future just when i was a teenager, I ran cross-country. My dad was a cross-country coach. I ended up running cross-country. Long story. But the truth is that when you're running cross-country, halfway through the race, your lungs are going to start to burn. Halfway through the race, your legs are going to cry out to you, and they're going to say, what do you think you're doing? Is this really fun? You're not even going to win. You might come in second or third, or you might even come in last place. So why are you even doing this? And you're going you're gonna to be so tempted to just want to give up and stop running the race. Church, that's exactly the opposite of what we want to do. Keep, we, we keep the eye on the prize. We keep our eye on the goal. We keep our eye on the, the end and not just our present circumstances. You know, when you're going to the gym, you're working out with weights and such, they say no pain, no gain, right? And so the truth is, you're not going to grow stronger if you don't experience some measure of pain. And that's the way it goes with, the church, with life, church. We will experience pain. I, I, to be honest with you, I, I do go to the gym. I haven't been for a while for various reasons. I'm going to give you a few excuses in just a moment. But the truth is, I, I don't like the pain there. I don't. We were watch, watching a movie last night, and, and it was actually clean. And it was just, they were walking by this gym, and, and this lady is not from our time, and I won't get into that. But she walked by, and there, he's looking at a gym. And she said, oh, yeah, we do that in our culture for torture. And it's like, yeah. No, they actually, and he says to her, they actually pay to do this. What? Yeah, it feels that way. I mean, there's, it's torture. But the truth is, church, when you learn that there is something good that's going to come out of this, you keep your eye on the goal and not just on the pain, you're going to learn how to endure anything. Be watchful. All seven letters have this phrase. Sometimes it's worded just a little bit differently. To him who overcomes, I will give. Church, 
church, here's the bottom line. Learn now, now, to be an overcomer. Learn what it takes to overcome. Don't allow things to overwhelm you and just shut you down. I have felt that way. I have felt like I've wanted to shut down, and I just, I go to my quiet place, and I just cry out to the Lord, literally sometimes just crying out to the Lord. God, I just feel like I can't do this. It's overwhelming. It's too hard. It's this. God, please step into my situation. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond right now? I will do no matter what it takes. But God, I need you to come through. I need you to step into my situation. Please guide my every step. Every step. Don't let me turn to the left or turn to the right. I want to follow you. I am like the 144,000. I'm going to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And I am just asking, can you step into this situation that's just blowing up in my face and, and, and rectify it, work something out so very good? Church, I'm just going to tell you this right now. God has always come through. In my most desperate times, I have seen the most miracles. Because God is good. And he's building a resilient, faithful people. 